has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All righty, we're ready to pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 12. That's where we're headed, but not before asking the Lord for his grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we do need your grace and your mercy. It's our time of need when we try to make sense of your word and to not only understand it, but put it into practice in our lives so that we could be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I came across a nice feel-good story the other day about a man named George uh, Weidenfeld. He's a wealthy British philanthropist. Uh, He's hard at work. Well, he spent the last two decades of his life uh, rescuing Christians from ISIS militants and all kinds of uh, terrorism around the world coming to the aid of Christians and churches there in the Middle East. It's got a great backstory. Listen to this. He's actually an Austrian-born Jew. He became a British citizen, and uh, he was rescued out of Nazi occupation. His parents were arrested But thanks to a group of British Christians, very generous and kind and merciful, they financed uh, his escape and found him a place to live in England. Not only him, but thousands of children. I have a picture of what was called the kinder transports. And so Christian groups uh, found a way right at the beginning when they could. That cost a lot of money. And at a lot of risk to their own lives, they managed to get some kids out of harm's way. And one of those kids was George. And when George settled into life in the UK, he grew up to become a very wealthy publisher. He started his own company. Let me read from the article here. He's speaking. He says, I have a debt to repay. And not just I, but so many who were rescued. It was Quakers and other Christian denominations who brought hundreds of children to to England out of harm's way. It was a very noble operation, and we Jews should be thankful to do something tangible for the endangered Christians around the world. Thank you for that picture. Well, in light of what was done for him, he sensed an enormous obligation to return the favor somehow. He received such mercy and at great cost to those 
who made his escape possible. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is bringing through the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 12, where we find ourselves this morning. The second half now of the book of Romans, the first half was showing us how God has done these wonderful acts of mercies toward us to save us. And we, we've been rescued from a fate that makes Auschwitz look like a day at Disneyland because how Jesus describes perishing Jesus, not a pastor, not a church, but the son of God's words in red in the Bible, a place of outer darkness where the flame does not cease nor does their worm die. And nobody really quite gets that whole picture, but it is a fate for which God came down to spare us from. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be saved. And now Romans 12 says, well, chapters one through eight anyway, was look at what he's done. He raised us from uh, being dead in our sins. He gave us new life. He washed our sins away. He's working all things out for our good. He's for us. Who could be against us? We could never be defeated, never be conquered. Not even death in the grave can stop us. Now, what do we do for him? And so the evidence that we've encountered the grace of God, that we've truly met the Lord and have new life and are called Christians genuinely, the evidence is this moral transformation or this response to the goodness and the kindness and the mercy that the heart has received. If there's no response, there's no gratitude, there's no wanting to do God's will now, then that kind of causes the claim to know Christ and his mercy to be a suspect at best. And so now we're in the practical section of the book of Romans where we get to see what pleases God. He says, man, the first thing we do is we offer ourselves completely to God. That's step number one. It makes sense. He gave everything for us. So we give everything for him. He laid down his life for us. We lay down our lives for him. He says, put yourself in the offering, man. That's what he wants. He wants your heart and life. The second thing that we do is resist the pressure from this godless, truth-rejecting world to squeeze us into its mold. We say no to that, been there, done that, and yes to the Holy Spirit transforming us, changing us, uh, and giving, him, giving us his truth to live by. No longer loving sin, but loving goodness and obedience and the things that make life truly life. And so this is where we left off to allow God to be renewing us, giving ourselves to him. And he says, now, and only now, can you know God's perfect, pleasing will, his good will for your lives. This is where we left off. And now he's going to tell us, starting at verse 3 in Romans chapter 12, he's going to describe what God's will for our lives is. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's take a look at it. Verses three through eight. Now for by the grace of God given me, I say to every one of you, 
Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That is the text before us. It divides quite nicely in half. I'll tell you all about that. But of the many epiphanies, right, of just our eyes opening wide at something new, uh, and, and something that enlightens us once we come to faith in Christ, one of the most shocking, one of the most, uh, actually it provides the, the most relief is to find out that the, we are no longer the center of the universe, <laughs> that there is a God, and it's not us. And so we go to work immediately in the knowledge of, wow, I've met the Lord who created heaven and earth and me for his purposes. We immediately start to abdicate the throne and let the Lord who created us, who saved us, uh, be the rightful ruler of our hearts and lives. That's step number one. And then we start to find out that he has a purpose. He has a will for us. And one of those wills is to respond in love gratefully to him is to serve one another. And so this is what the passage is about here, that when we want to show love for God, we show love to one another in practical ways. And that is one way that we respond and we find God's will. To be another centered person is really what we're starting to think about here. That brings joy, meaning, and purpose to everybody's life. It brings mental health and well-being because when you are serving the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, it, nothing good comes of that. In fact, the Bible says when you're all about yourself, it is the place where every evil practice dwells. James chapter 3 and verse 16. Selfish ambition is the root of all these kinds of nasty sins. And so God's will is, is that he makes us good at doing things where others benefit. And he expects that we are part of his ongoing work to build up the church, to do good deeds, to strengthen and encourage his people to be able to be light in a very dark world. That's what it's about. And if you ever hope to be of any good to God, you'll have to get this paragraph down. And what this paragraph has, as we, we're going to isolate into two points, two big ideas staring at you. The first is some really necessary mindsets, some vital attitudes, three of them. 
You have to have them if God is going to use you at all. And the second part of the paragraph is how he wants to use us in some ways, seven ways that he wants to use us. All Christians are called to, in some degree, to be involved in all seven. But some he gives gifts and special abilities to, and he wants us to be aware of that and talk about that. But none of it matters if you don't have three things. And those first three things are in our first point. You can go there, Spence, for me. The three attitudes he's calling for, if you want to hit the bullseye, if you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant for all that God had you do in your life, you have to do it in humility, number one. Number two, you have to have confidence because God has called you to your measure of faith. And then number three, you have to sense a responsibility to others, that the way God designed his work is to use his people to speak through our mouths, to work through our hands, to move through our feet, and to do the work. And there's no other way that a church (laughs) is healthy or grows or has any kind of thing to offer anybody is the giftings and the contributing of each of the members. And so with that, you realize, wow, God has given me something that other people need, and he expects me to use those things, those abilities, not just for myself, but to build other people up and to use it for his cause and his people. That's the gist of the path. Um, passage here before us. Um, So we're going to highlight, as we did, uh, verses 3 through 5 for the attitudes beginning with humility. So now, think about this. God says, I'm going to give you gifts and abilities that come from heaven. They're going to be the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do things that you could never do in yourself. And quite frankly, it's going to be a wow. Because it's going to be a gift from heaven. It's going to be empowered by God himself. And so in light that God wants to do a work in us and through us and for us on occasion, then Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you better be grounded in humility. You better humble yourself if God is doing these wonderful things in your heart and life and through you. You're going to be tempted to be puffed up with pride. And sometimes we get the gift, the source of the gift, mixed up with ourselves and start to think, wow, this is all about how good and gifted I am personally instead of seeing that with humility. So Paul starts out by saying, look, how wise and humble. Verse 3, he says, now, he's an authority, He's an apostle. He's telling them how they should live. But here's what he says. He says, by the grace given me. So what he's saying, I say to you, by the grace given me, he's saying, I offer these words of advice and instruction as a fellow debtor to the same God. I was a sinner as well. And I needed to be saved. And God has poured out his grace upon me to be able to serve you and bring these words of encouragement. One writer said, listen, take it from the apostle Paul. He knows best because he was used so powerfully and mightily. Um, Another writer, you cannot be filled with the spirit and full of yourself at the same 
time. It doesn't work that way. John the Baptist taught us that. Remember what he said? He said, he must what? He must increase and I must decrease. That's the way to find a blessed life. Paul knows, as you see in these verses, it can be a very heady, uh, exhilarating thing to have God use you in the slightest way. And he does in the slightest way use every believer uh, 24-7. He's at work in our hearts and lives. And sometimes we don't even know that he's been using us. But it's a heady thing. It's an intoxicating thing when God does a wow in you or through you, right? And that's why he counters with the word, you better think of yourself not in a distorted uh, way of inebriated view of yourself where everything's distorted when you drink. He says, no, sober up. Sober up and think about yourself with sober judgment. You know, you'll say something that comforts somebody and sets their hearts free, or you'll pray over somebody and God does something extraordinary and fantastic, or you share the gospel and their eyes light up and their whole lives are changed and you're amazed. And Paul says, don't let that go to your head. Pride will ruin everything and it'll sabotage all the good things that God wants to do and render you unusable pride makes us more like the evil one than the Lord. So we have to be careful about thinking anything good. Paul says, nothing good lives in me except the grace of God by the Spirit. The Spirit is good. He says, everything else, nothing good lives in me. He's anchored. That's a sober way of viewing himself. And so, yeah, I mean, God has ways to help us uh, not be puffed up with pride when he uses us. I've told this story before. It's kind of fun. Well, looking back on it, it's funny. <laughs> I was only 20, so go easy on me. I was only 20 years old. I've been in Bible college for one year. I'd known the Lord one year. And I was working as a waiter at what was called the Holiday Barn Dinner Theater. So I was a waiter slash actor in some of the shows, and it was kind of fun to do. So I was sharing the gospel once when the theater cleared out. There were only a couple actors there, and I was sharing the gospel, and they were asking some really hard questions. And I was amazed that I had so many good answers. <laughs> I, I, I mean... I was pausing, and I was being wowed, and I was like, whoa, I didn't know I knew that, you know, and I was saying it, and, and they were, like, really impressed, and they let that show a little bit, and then when they couldn't say anything else, I was like, done. I turned around, just thought to myself, whoa, I didn't know I was that smart, you know, <laughs> and I'm walking away. Now, the way out of the theaters has curtains that are drawn back and it had an overhang and everything's painted in dark tones so that it almost disappears so it's hard to see things like overhangs and I walked with my forehead full speed into the overhang pow and I knocked myself out <laughs> and I get up I see stars and I look back there and I hear them laughing and I look at them and I was like, you know, <laughs> awkward, oh, an awkward moment if ever there was one. And then I walked away and the Holy Spirit's like, 
Now, come on. You can't even walk without knocking yourself out. Come on, and that has always stuck with me. Like, listen up, Ryanman. I gotta help you get from A to B, all right, without knocking yourself out. Uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment. Can you imagine Paul? Take it from him. Wow, he's writing scripture. He's laying hands on the sick and they're recovering. He got a glimpse of heaven. He had an angelic visit, not once but twice. And let's not forget the Lord, God, appeared to him. Yikes. And he says, to keep me grounded, I've had a lot of difficulties, a lot of crosses to bear, a thorn in my flesh that's just evil just torments me, but it grounds me and keeps me because God, when God gifts me and uses me, the last thing he or I want is to be swelled up with pride and become unusable and ruin all the good things that God wants to do. And so God has his ways, but he says, listen, if you, like Paul, look at yourself with sober judgment. What sobers you up about yourself? Well, how about how prone we are to wander, prone to leave the God we love, how easily we get entangled in sin, how quickly we veer off the path and act like hypocrites, the awful self-centered things we can say and do. That's the sober judgment to look at us, even as Christians, even as headed to heaven as co-heirs with Christ. We have this sober judgment. Paul was not shy about it. He said, I'm the worst sinner I know. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15. And so that's the way that we look at ourselves with the sober Judgment that keeps us grounded and, and we have humility when God wants to work in and through us. But we are to think of ourselves not too highly, but also in the next tagline, not too lowly either. We need some measure of confidence and that's what that word means there, that phrase I should say. Now, think uh, in accordance, think of yourself in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. What does that mean? It means we are to remember who we are without Christ and without his grace, but we're also to remember who we are with Christ and with his grace. The measure of faith given you is everything God has said of you in the scriptures, that you're more than conquerors that God has given you gifts and abilities that he wants you to use. I mean, if he calls to you and says, get out of the boat, walk on the water, that's the measure of faith he gave to Peter. And even though Peter had lots of problems and lots of issues that he could stay humble by remembering in a sober estimation of his life, he also had a measure of faith that he knew what God wanted him to do. And Christians know the general will of God to shine our lights, to share the gospel, to say no to sin, to be an encouragement to people, to be other-centered. So he says, you will have some degree of confidence as well as humility when you not only see yourself in a sober judgment, but also the measure of faith that God 
has gifted you with or calling you, made you good at. So there's a lot going for you as well. And so there's the counterbalance. You've got the humility, knowing who and what you can be and you're capable of without God's grace. And you've got this measure of faith that brings you this confidence that you're unstoppable in the will of God, that God wants to use you. He's wiped out all your sins and, and he's gonna do great and powerful things in and through you. But those things, <laughs> two things have to work together. And then thirdly, now he starts to Nurture the understanding that whatever God wants you to do, it's he's working for the good of the whole church. He wants you to come to an understanding of that God is depending on you to use the things that you do well to bless his people and make the church healthy and effective and productive. It depends on you. And you have to come away from this passage thinking, wow, I'm a valued part of what? And he calls it the church of human body. He uses the analogy in verse four, just as each of us has one body with many parts, and these parts don't all have the same function in our body. So in Christ, we who are many members form one body, and each member belongs to all the others to keep the body alive. So he's stirring in them an understanding that people in the pews are depending life and death on them. Yes, you. Anybody who calls themselves a Christian, God calls out of the world, mystically joins them to Christ and then joins them to one another, his body, where he thinks they fit. And the way the body manifests itself here in Santa Rosa, one way it does is the body called the rock. So he says, I want you to picture that if you're a member of Christ and a member of a church family, that there's a human body. It all has parts. They all are very, very different. And they do very, very different things. But there's one goal because there's one body and they all have to work together for the well-being and the health and the goodness of the body. And when there are pieces missing or don't work right or can't cooperate with one another, then you've got dis-ease, both senses of that disease and dis-ease in the body. So the Bible is stirring up the significance, the importance of church that we need each other. Not everybody gets that. You know, I was, where was I? I was somewhere, I wasn't on that page. I was at a rental car place and the guy saw my email, I only have one email, and he said, is CC The Rock a church name? And I said, yes it is. And I said, oh, are you a Christian? And he said, yes I am. And always my next question, where do you go to church? Well, I usually say, I usually say, where do you fellowship? And when they don't know what the word fellowship means, then I know, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Strike one. <laughs> so I said, where do you go to church? And he says, in my living room. You got a problem with that? He goes, I, he goes, I got everything I need right there in my living room. And I said, you've got everything you need except all the other parts. 
all the other parts. By definition, this verse, verse 4, puts to death forever the notion that church isn't a vital part of the Christian's life. Say, so, you know, well, I'm a Christian. Do I have to go to church? I'm a bird. Do I have to fly? <laughs> That's by definition who you are biblically. He describes you as a part of a human body. What if your pancreas suddenly said, you know what? I really don't want to play this game anymore. <laughs> All right, constantly needing that insulin stuff. Come on, I'm shutting down. Then the whole body suffers. Every part of the 100 trillion cell member, 100 trillion cells, will suffer. Because one part of it says, you know what? I'm in my living room. You've got a problem with that? <laughs> You know what? I don't have a problem with it, but I know somebody who does. And, and I just ended the conversation this way. He says, you know what? I've got everything I need. So he thinks, right? I said, brother, we need each other. We need each other. He set it up that way. He doesn't have a plan B. He matures and grows and makes a church effective one Way by making his people individually good at certain things so that in his mind you will come together and use those abilities to strengthen the whole body so that the whole body can do its job to equip us to serve him in this world to shine a light in a dark place where many are perishing. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many go that way, Jesus said. Jesus' words. So, of course, we have to have our acts together. And the only way a church can prosper, there's only one way, and it comes down to you. Yes, you. If you're a born-again Christian, it will come down to you because you're part of the body so you have to not be doing your own thing. A cell that does its own thing is called cancer. And then that affects everybody else. But see, we live in a world that mix of churches going and getting what you need, critiquing things. How'd you like the sermon? It's a critique. It's critique, critique. How was the worship this week? It's, it's what I got. I got what I needed. And, and quite frankly, I, I left. John Piper used to ask his church, why do you come to church? And he said, yeah, we kind of figured it out. You come to church because you get Bible teaching, you like the worship, you like the people, we get that. But he'd ask the congregation on more than one occasion, what do you come to give? That's God's mindset, that you have a part to play. And he's made you good at something. Every single person has a gift, whether you know it or not. Sometimes we over-spiritualize what it is. Like he says, encouragement is a gift. And, and, and being merciful is a gift. That's how you know it's not exhaustive. There's a lot of ways that God makes you good at something, but it's not just so that you can feel good about yourself that I'm good at something or enjoy the blessing yourself, which isn't in itself a bad thing, but it was primarily given you to bless and to inspire and to help and to serve. Oh, man, he's now going to give us seven 
ways that we could be a blessing, seven ways that God makes Christians good at some things so that they would share and make the body strong and healthy. Let's take a look at them. There they are. He says, we have different gifts, way different. And he names seven of them. Now, note takers, if you want the full list, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12. You can also go to 1 Peter 4. You can also go to Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll find about, in total, including these seven, you'll find about 30, depending who's counting. And all commentators say it's not exhaustive. We tend to say, we tend to say, you know, uh, these gifts and these gifts only, but God is, uh, has a much wider plan than that. And so as you hold on to humility, you believe God's word for your life, and you have some confidence to be used of him, and now you have a sense of responsibility. Well, the body, the body at the rock. They need me. Once you've got all of that, here are seven ways you can be a blessing. Now, spiritual gifts. We are to desire them. Did you know you could pray for them? Yes, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. What does that mean? He's telling Christians, pray. Pray for them. Pray, God, make me good at something that will bless the church. And a lot of you have done that, and a lot of you do that. But we can grow more and more. Now, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy, and prophecy is number one in the list. Now, Things have changed a little bit from the Old Testament, New Testament days when, it, when it's about the stand-up prophet like that. Let, let me explain it to you. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in, in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Ephesians chapter um, 2 puts it this way, that the prophets and the apostles were gifts to lay the foundation of the church. Well, the foundation of the church has been laid. So now the term to prophesy, really, and it does have this meaning, is to speak for God, to, to share the gospel, to preach and teach the gospel, to proclaim God's message under divine influence. And when you're sharing the word of God, <laughs> you've got the word of God and you've got the Holy Spirit doing his work. And so this word is not just for the pastor, though the pastor is in this sense, prophesying every week to you because he is taking the word of God and speaking, uh, hopefully, God willing, under some sort of inspiration of the Lord, and that's that gift, and he gives that gift to pastors. But in the wider sense, everybody, everybody's supposed to have a reason for the hope that you have inside uh, and, and be ready to share the gospel, to, to hold out the word of life in this world. And every time you speak for God, you are 
prophesying in this sense of the word. You're declaring the message of the kingdom. And he is willing to make some people very, very good at it. They're just good. They know, they remember where that verse is in the Bible and they've got a good command of the scriptures and they're, they're easy to listen to and they break it down to you. Some people have that gift, but we're all called. And why can't we be praying, God, make me better at sharing your word. And now look at the tagline in the verse. It says, let him, pro- let, ladies prophesied as well too. It's just the language of the day. Uh, Stephen's four daughters prophesied. And there's a word about women prophesying fine in the church. So women would proclaim God's word. Um, According to the grace given us, let someone prophesy, let him use it in a proportion to his faith. It means don't go overboard. Don't get in over your head. Know who you are and know your ability that God has gifted you with. I myself I would not go and offer myself to teach a theology class in Greek and Hebrew, those kinds of things. I'd be over my head. That's not my measure of faith. He says, know who you are and don't don't put yourself in a situation where, you know, oh, I know this scripture and that scripture. And before you know it, you're outgunned, right? So sometimes people will open the door to cultists who've been at this all their life and very well-trained and very gifted of sorts, and they find themselves outgunned because they're not exercising their gifts in accordance with the faith that God has given them. And so don't, don't get carried away. That's what he's saying. Accept your limitations, right? Number two. Oh, by the way, I had a little picture here. And I chose, I just chose that picture because you always think of the pulpit when sharing the message. Man alive. Some of the the best scripture sharing that I've ever done in my life has been in Starbucks. (laughs) Somewhere where you least suspect it, you pull out a scripture and bam, right between the eyes. It's wonderful. And and so uh, pray for that gift. Number two, and I've got little... Uh, slides here. Serving. Serving, the word there is where we get the word deacon, and it's a fun picture, deacon. The word picture is, it means to kick up dust. In other words, the deacons are those who have this gift, and by the way, all Christians are called deacons. Christ was called a deacon, uh, but uh, it's because they're always running around serving you. And so kicking up dust, they're busy serving, ready and willing to lend a hand, to set something up, to tear something down, to open a door, to carry a load, to clean up a mess, to cook a meal, to run an errand, to do a favor. They love that stuff. Makes them feel good. It doesn't mean that they always love it, that it's always pleasurable. It doesn't mean that they don't get tired. And it doesn't mean that they don't look around and say, hey, I'm killing myself here. You know, Martha had the gift of serving. And she had to kind of deal with a sister who didn't have that gift at the moment. The Proverbs 31 woman, she has the gift of serving. You see, the gift of serving is what Jesus did. And he taught us all that we need to be others-centered 
one quote from a writer said, every Christian is a servant and called to be other-centered. And like most gifts, we all have to participate, serving, giving, helping, encouraging, to show mercy, to excuse oneself from opportunities to be a blessing because it's, quote, not your gift is not acceptable, nor is it honorable, nor is it a good response to be helpful to the body, not being helpful to the body there. And so ready to serve. People who serve see miracles of God. They're the ones. You know the story in Mark chapter 2, or John 2. I think it's John 2, the wedding in Cana. So the Lord asks the servants to fill the water jugs up to the top with water. And the servants go and do it, right? And they bring it back. And there's... The groom is called to taste the water. And he says, man, you have saved the best for last. And the servants are standing there knowing, hey, all we did was put water in there. And you're drinking water. And they're like, whoa, this wine is the best. They, alone in the room, the servants, got to see the glory of God and got to see God move and provide and do a work. Nobody else had a clue. Only the lowly servants oftentimes see the hand of God at work. And so there's a lot to be said about serving. And the next one is teaching. And everybody always thinks of the obvious, and it is the obvious, that you're good at, you know, teaching, whether you're a teacher in the schools or whether you're a teacher from a platform. Uh, you take something, you make it easy, and you apply it. But here we're talking about dads who are teaching young men how to be godly fathers, how to be godly husbands, how not to get sucked into sexual addiction like half of the world with pornography and all kinds of traps, how to manage your money, how to be a hard worker. These things are taught. He says, pray that God make you good at teaching. And then I got another picture. Older women mentoring younger women. And where the teaching happens is over a cup of coffee, connecting, teaching women how to be good moms, how to be good uh, wives. In tough times, we need each other. We need to teach one another. So don't always just think, well, you know, it's in the Sunday school classroom or it's from the pulpit. We're teaching people. We're called to teach. Can you imagine if, if we got a hold of uh, some senior citizens who have lived a godly life and sit them down and say, teach me three things God has taught you in your life. How rich, how wonderful. This is the body of Christ. And these things happen in home fellowship groups. They happen in the foyer. They happen when we get together all the time. And so we move on to encouragement. Now, some people, thank you for that slide. Some people are like Eeyore. You know Eeyore. Eeyore is like, oh, this weather, it's going to be like this forever. <laughs> 
It's the sun is never gonna come out. We're all gonna die. <laughs> and then there's Tigger. He's bouncy, he's trouncy, he's a lot of fun, 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 right? And so the gift of encouragement, man, first of all, you've got the gift of encouragement, you're gonna have a lot of friends. You're gonna have a lot of friends because people are hurting, people wanna be encouraged. The gift of encouragement, the word means to come alongside somebody, put your arm around them, literally means the same name as the Holy Spirit. So somebody who's good at encouragement is good at listening, good at discerning what's going on, knows how to be a good coach, knows how to say just the right thing, not too little, not too much. It's always good to have somebody in your life like that, but it's also good to be that person. God, make me an encourager. Like Barnabas. Barnabas, his name was Joe. Nobody called him Joe. Everybody called him Barney. Why'd they call him Barney? It means son of encouragement. And that phrase means, wow. And every time you see him in the book of Acts, about four times he's encouraging somebody. He's got the gift. Make me encouraging. God, help me. Now, can you imagine? These are people I know who are in church today. All right? Got somebody who is grieving the loss of a spouse. Recent. We've got somebody struggling in their marriage. We've got somebody who's feeling very, very lonely. We've got somebody who's overcome right now by a besetting sin. We got somebody who is fighting a life-threatening disease today in church. We've got somebody who's struggling with doubt in their faith. We've got somebody who's feeling very, very depressed. And more. They're here today. Well, you might be thinking, I had no idea. Where are they? There's a reason why some people don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Because the mindset is to come and get, not to come and listen and look for opportunities to encourage. Because those people are here in the room now. Find them. Find them. Do what it takes to find them. But first, you have to know it's your responsibility. First, you gotta know, I, I gotta be looking for them. They're here. And then when, I promise you, a, a prayer God will answer every single time. He will answer this. Lord, show me somebody who's struggling, needs a word of encouragement, show me. You'll run into them. You will run into them. But you have to pray. You have to come with that expectation. I'm looking for them, Lord. And you will find them, and then you will say something that will give them a reason to keep living. I ran into somebody at Starbucks, and Pastor Carlin was with me, and we were having coffee talking about the church. And somebody said to me, you said something from the pulpit, and something you said to me here at Starbucks, at, I'm gonna call it Starbucks, just to protect the whole thing. <laughs> that caused me to keep on living. You just never know. 
You don't know who you're sitting next to, and God makes some people really good at wanting to be the person to throw the lifeline, to just kind of lift them up, to hug them, to say, you can make it, you can do this. You're the person. Why can't you be the person? You can be that person. And it takes a little time. It takes a little effort. Be that person. God, make me that person. And then we're finishing up here. Number five is contributing to the needs of others. It just means, listen, if, that, if you're good at that, God gives givers money. Because look at God's, the way he thinks of it there, generous. He thinks of it this way. Who should I give money that I know is open-handed and has my heart to want to bless people in need and use it for my purposes? Well, who who should God give money to and resources? Those who squander it on mostly themselves, right? And a little sprinkle here and there, right? Or do people say, God, oh, I just take great joy in giving to your work, to your cause, privately uh, benevolent uh, acts of generosity. Of course God's thinking. And that's why he says to those who give, it will be given. Because he knows where to direct those resources. And so if that's what you're good at, and that's what you have, one person has some means in this church, and says, of course, I came to a quick conclusion that God just didn't give me all of these resources for me. It was obvious to me, and it's embarrassing, he said, to realize how much I have, so I have to share. Of course, because God's given me that. Now, most churches, uh, I, this is a hard number, 20% of the congregation gives this church, I just was curious, so I asked the executive pastor, what's the percent of people who attend here that give? 68% of people give to the church. That's pretty amazing stuff. That's pretty amazing. And you know what? We excel. We excel in a lot of areas of these gifts. Because people come, they hang out, they go to home fellowship groups, they go to events, and they're looking to be a blessing, to show God that they love him. They're grateful to him. So now I'm going to take care of your prized possessions. He said, Peter, do you love me? Take care of my little ones. That's how you'll show me. Have a heart for them. And then number six, leading. That's a fast one. That's an easy one. I like the tagline. The word means to stand before others. All right, but everybody in a sense is leading somebody. And he says, if you're in that position, look at the tagline quickly. It says, uh, work at it with diligence. Here's what he means. Instead of enjoying the position or the office of being a leader, actually work at being a good leader because the temptation is to leaders to just kind of sit back and enjoy and, you know, you tell other people what to do and that's the temptation of leadership. But he says, not Christian leadership. You're in it to serve and to be diligent and to don't merely enjoy the position, uh, but 
lead by example. Paul the apostle said, man, he gets down in the ditch with everybody. And he says, whatever things you've seen, heard, learn in me, put into practice. Everybody in this room should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. All right, we finished with showing mercy. Now, if showing mercy is a gift, thank you for the new slide. Our Lord was pretty good with showing mercy. He's shown mercy to all of us as well. We have an obligation to be merciful, but there are people who are really good at showing mercy. That's what we want to be uh, for sure. He said, blessed are those who are merciful for they will obtain mercy. So if anybody wants to obtain it, the way to obtain it for sure is to be good at extending that mercy. The word has a connotation also of visiting prisoners, um, helping the homeless, uh, feeding and clothing the poor. That's a soft heart toward people in need. This world has become a very hard place filled with a lot of hate. And one of the signs Jesus gave for his coming He said, in the days right before I come back, the world's heart will be stone cold. Everybody will be angry and on edge, and there'll not be a lot of love. That's what he said. So for you and I, we need to pray for the gift of mercy. Jesus looked at her and said, caught in the act, well, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. Go your way and leave your life of sin. See, repentance is important there. It just didn't say everything goes. Turn, have faith. And she was looking to him in faith, and he required that repentance, that true faith. But to be merciful. Are you merciful? Do you cut people slack? Or in your marriages, come on. Do you just have to make everything a battle, every little thing really merciful? And here's the hard part about being merciful. Merciful is showing somebody something they don't deserve. And so we're like, well, they don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. (laughs) That's what mercy is. He showed it to you. And he says, pray that God would make you good at it. Now, imagine a church, and you don't have to because you kind of go to one like this, but a church where mercy reigns, where the word is proclaimed not just by the pastors, and everyone is other-centered and wanting to kick up some dust, teaching, encouraging, giving, generously, leading by example. That's the kind of church I want to go to. That's the kind of church I attend here at The Rock. And the thing about the Bible is he always says, okay, you got this. Now see that you excel more and more in these grace gifts, more and more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your goodness that you want to use people like us. Lord, we're so messed up, all of us. We've got so many broken pieces, and we don't have it together, God, but you still want to use us. You give us gifts and abilities, Lord, so help us to 
have the desire to serve you with everything in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.